Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. We are going to be talking to you about a man who uh, kind of made his demise, but he's also uh, very prominent in our history. Yes. Now, I've talked a lot about uh, people that people maybe not, have never heard of. This guy, I'm going to bet most everybody has heard of the name Jim Bowie. Mm -hmm. All right? Now, his name is associated with a terrible weapon, a knife with a 14-inch blade, actually doubled-edged uh, uh, for a space of about two and a half inches from the curve of the point to the tip of the blade. Did he, was, did he like, fashion this blade? Yeah. Did he? That was kind of his, his thing. That was his signature? Yeah. But there's been some misconceptions regarding the original Bowie knife. Uh, for many years, this knife was claimed to be the one Bowie used in a massacre in 1827 to kill a guy. But in fact, he actually just used a butcher knife. So maybe that's when he decided, you know what, I need a better knife than a butcher knife. <laughs> so he developed this. Anyway, uh, he was not a confirmed troublemaker, yet he became involved in more scenes of bloody violence uh, than perhaps any other man along the frontier. He, was, he wasn't hanging out with the no. right crowd, was he? Well, depends. <laughs> but, you know, he was not a killer in one sense of the word. However, when a fight or when he was in a fight or wounded, he would charge in like a grizzly bear for the kill. And his savage lust to kill intensified by the slashing and the maiming with his dreaded knife. The so Bowie he, knife. Yeah, he, so he kind of really got into it, I guess you could say. Anyway, so 1814, Jim left home and built a shack uh, in Louisiana. Okay. But the dangers of the swamps uh, just became way too dull for Jim. So in 1818, he and his brother, his name is Resin, speculated in the illegal African slave trade. They became business partners with Jean Lafitte. Lafitte? Lafitte, on, uh, this, on a place called San Louis Island. Okay. Now, the Bowie brothers... Uh, bought slaves from the pirate Lafitte at a dollar a head, and they would sneak them into the territorial limits of the United States. Now there, they would turn the slaves over to customs officials and claim the, quote, informer's reward. Now, <laughs> the curious law enabled the Bowie brothers to buy back the slaves at half price, receiving a proper bill of sale and the right to sell the slaves within the United States. So they were getting a dollar, and then they were getting the, basically, the finder's The reward. Fee, the reward, and then they were buying them back half price and then selling. So, wow. What a deal, right? Jeez. <laughs> Quite the businessman. Mm -hmm. Well, in 1830, Jim met and married the beautiful Maria Ursula in Mexico. The tragedy which shook Bowie more than anything else in his life was the death of his wife and two children in 1833. They actually died of cholera while visiting Maria's parents in Mexico. This really crushed him. It was, it was hard for him. But soon after that, Jim found himself fighting for Texas independence, and in October of 1835, he was actually at a place called the Mission Concepcion near San Antonio, and there were uh, 100 Texans defeated 400 Mexicans. Now, this was a battle that actually only lasted about 30 minutes, but they were victorious. Now, the fall of the Alamo in 1836 was, of course, the battle which opened the campaign of Santa Ana in Texas. Uh, the massacre of its defenders caused a huge sensation 
throughout the United States. Uh, I mean, the horror of it all, uh, intensified by rumors and mystery, and, of course, romantic tales began to fly, and, you know, the, the TV and movie industry has definitely romanticized that, oh, whole, yes. that whole process. Oh, but yes. Anyway, you know, uh, so the question, was the fall of the Alamo, Alamo a tragedy, or was it just a military blunder? Okay, now, Sam Houston told both Bowie and Tr Colonel Travis to evacuate the place immediately and to destroy it. Well, they didn't do it. And neither did they have scouts out to inform them of the approaching Mexican army. Uh-oh. So there were some things that were bad from the get-go. But, of course, this was not uh, meant to imply that the gallant defenders of the Alamo were not brave. On the contrary, they were brave to the point of recklessness. Uh, when common sense should have told their leaders that a defensive retreat was the most logical thing, especially after Sam Houston had told them to get out of there. And they didn't do it. So in 1836, San Antonio was a town of about 7,000 people, uh, and a number of whom were Mexicans that actually aligned with the cause of Texas. So there were some uh, people that wanted uh, Texas to, to take over. But the San Antonio River uh, separated the town from the Alamo, with the Alamo being on the east side of the river. Now, south of the Alamo was the Alamo Village, and you could almost call that kind of a uh, suburb of San Antonio. Okay. So it's kind of like a little village uh, outside of the main town of San, uh, San okay. Antonio. Living in the burbs. Yeah. So, anyway, the mission itself had neither the strength nor the uh, compactness for a regular military base. Uh, the chapel bears the date of 1757, but apparently parts of the other works were built at a later date. The area actually comprises the fort, uh, was nearly three acres, so not very big. Uh, so it's kind of understandable why these guys had a rough time defending it. Uh, so it would have, been take, to, would have taken nearly 1,500 men uh, to successfully repel all of the uh, assault by the, by the Mexicans. Okay. So this might be a good spot for a break if you want to, Gina. Uh, no, go ahead. Okay. You're good. We're good? Yep. All right. Well, the Alamo consisted of a church a hospital, a convent with wall, a walled enclosure. Okay. And when converted into a fort in 1836, uh, the works were mounted with 14 guns. Now, these weapons were of little effect uh, against the Mexicans uh, since uh, they're, uh, they, they really didn't know how to use them. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. The, the, they had these guns, but... Nobody really knew they used them, but they... He was a knife guy. Yeah, but the, the, the people in the fort didn't really know how to use these guns. So so here we are, the winter of 1836 <clears throat> saw Colonel Neal in command of San Antonio. He had two companies of volunteers. Now, although the government of Texas was then in open revolt against Mexican rule, it had not yet declared a final separation from its mother country. Okay. So, at this time, the governor assigned Lieutenant Colonel William B. Travis to relieve Colonel Neal at San Antonio. Okay, so are okay. you with me? I'm with we you. We got Colonel Travis, you got Colonel Neal. Now, the men under uh, Neal did not want to accept Travis as a succeeding commander. And they, they didn't like him? They didn't like him. They didn't want him. Okay. So, they demanded their colonel issue an, issue an order for them to elect their own commander out of their men. Okay. So they didn't like Travis. They didn't like Neil. They wanted to vote their own guy in there. Well, Colonel Neil was kind of uh, on the spot, so he tried to arrange for an election to select a second in command. He was not successful and was nearly mobbed for his trouble. 
Well, Neil quickly amended his order, and Jim Bowie was unanimously elected a full colonel. Okay, So Bowie had been prominent in the campaign. His men loved him, and he was a good leader. Bowie became a colonel in February of 1836. Okay. So now we've got kind of a mixture of leadership, so to speak, here. Well, anyway, two weeks later, found Travis at the Alamo. Now, naturally, he was really mad over the condition of the affairs and demanded that he be placed in command. On the other hand, Bowie stated that he was in charge by virtue of the election and also that he should command the men who came with Travis. So the election results stood, huh? Well, sort of. Sort of. And and now Travis, when he came in, he brought a company of recruits, uh, part of uh, the regiment of a cavalry uh, uh, from the Texas government intended to raise. Um, Travis Command uh, also brought in some Mexican recruits to the fort. Mm -hmm. And thus at the Alamo on the day of Santa Ana's uh, attack was Travis's company, recruits, and two volunteer companies under Colonel Bowie, a total of about 160 men. Okay. So that's keep, not a lot keep, compared to what what, the, what they're oh, yeah. going to be facing. Yeah, here. and we'll get to those numbers too. Okay. So, uh, nearly the entire garrison consisted of men who had recently arri- arrived in Texas, and among the famous to fall here were Davy Crockett mm-hmm. of Tennessee. Uh, he he showed up with thirty uh, Tennesseans, is what I'm, I'm reading here. Is yeah, that correct? Yeah. So they joined the command just a few weeks earlier. But uh, anyway, General Santa Ana personally led the advance from Laredo. Uh, his troops consisted of a dragoon regiment. Now, that's a mounted, uh, like a cavalry. Okay, okay. A, a okay. dragoon. Okay. Uh, the way I understand it, unless I'm wrong, somebody call in and let us know. So he had a dragoon regiment and three battalions of infantry. Uh, now, I did the figures on this, and with the numbers, I came up with between 2,200 to 5,000. 2,200 on the low end, up to 5,000 on, on the high the, on end. On the high end, okay. Yeah, depending, okay. on, depending on how many was in a regiment and how many were in battalions, because that varied. So it could have been uh, 400 up to 1,000. Just depending yeah. upon on, on where they were coming from? Yeah, so, okay. so we really don't know exactly how many were headed that way. So this was February 22nd. So the defenders of the Alamo failed to maintain an outpost uh, scouting patrol, possibly due to the conflicting situation as to who was really in charge at this post. So nobody said, hey, let's go out and scout these people. But at any rate, they knew, of course, that the Mexicans were on their way. They knew they were coming. Uh But their immediate approach was unknown until Santa Ana's dragoons, (laughs) dragoons, I love saying that. (laughs) It sounds like a bad game. (laughs) I know. Anyway, when they were seen descending the slope west of uh, the San Pedro Mountains, many residents fled in in disorder, some to the fort and some to the open plains. So the civilians, they saw what was coming. They just headed out. They they were out of there. We're out of here. Yeah. Later. So uh, anyway, the defenders of the Alamo that same evening dropped shot an 18-pound shell into the captured town because uh, they had captured San Antonio. Okay. So their shot was answered by Mexican gunners. Santa Ana himself claims that shortly after that, the commander of the Alamo raised a white flag and agreed to evacuate, if allowed to do so uh, unmolested and retaining their weapons. Well, the Mexican dictator refused any, uh, what we call a parley, except to discuss an unconditional surrender. Surrender. Yeah. Now, another report claims that 
parley taps were sounded by the Mexican bugler. Now, my understanding of that is the taps that are sounded would indicate, okay, we're going to have a truce and discuss surrender. Right. Okay. So everybody hold your fire. Right. Okay. Okay, so that's what supposedly happened, and that buoy sent a courier under a flag of truce to inquire about its meaning. Mm -hmm. In other words, what's going on? Well, Santa Ana apparently was mad about this. He said he ordered no such bugler to, to sound parley, and that all the occupants of the fort would be treated as rebels with no surrender terms except that of his own choosing, which would be death. Right. Okay, so... At, so we don't know if that stuff really happened. That, those are kind of the rumors surrounding that. Rumor mill. Yes. Well, after the messenger had returned to the Alamo, Travis asked his men to take an oath to fight to the bitter end. He also displayed great displeasure in the fact that Bowie had sent a courier in, in response to the Mexican parley, which we don't really know if that happened. So, now, in the movies and on TV... Okay. okay, you see... This is the romanticization of it. Yes, you see him draw a line in the dirt. Yes. And uh, those that want to stay, step over the line. One of these days, I'm going to tell you a story uh, uh. about the coward at the Alamo. Oh. Uh. Now, the movie shows everybody stepping over the line. But there was one, there there was was, one who did... Uh, there's did. one guy that said, uh, this doesn't look real good. Uh, I, I'm going to leave. And I'll tell you. I'll, okay. I'll get that story out one of these days. Please do. Yeah, it's kind of fun. Anyway, um, so the following morning, uh, uh, they uh, were silenced by the 18-pounders from the fort, but they were quickly restored to operation. A regiment of cavalry and three battalions of Mexican infantry arrived on the 24th, and the siege was on. It lasted until the 6th day of March, a total of 11 days. Now, keep in mind, 160 men against anywhere from 2,200 to 5,000. And they lasted 11 days, which to me is a miracle. That's phenomenal. Yeah. But a determined resistance was offered by that band of men at the Alamo, some of whom actually had never fired a rifle. That's... Okay. Well, you better you run quick there, son. You didn't have a lot of help. No. But the authority fell on Travis the second day of the siege when Bowie was stricken with pneumonia after injuring his spine in a fall and so severe was his illness that Bowie probably never would have left the mission alive anyway, okay. regardless of the regardless, battle. Regardless, yeah. Uh, yeah. He's so, going to die one way or another. Right. So on March 1st, 32 men reinforcements actually stole through the enemy lines and entered the Alamo. Now, it's doubtful if Santa Ana's men didn't see him. So the order must have been, okay, let him go in, and they're not going to leave. Right. So no big deal. Let him go. Anyway, Travis sent a courier to the government on March 3rd, and in this message, Travis claimed that none of his men had yet fallen, but that aid was desperately needed. Mm -hmm. Desperately. Beyond desperately. Yeah. Well, General Santa Ana fixed the morning of the 6th for the final and grand assault. It was a gray, dismal morning. The morning of the 6th found Crockett, Davy Crockett, looking out at the hordes of Mexicans. Now, can you imagine thousands of these guys storming towards you? And knowing the final moment, this was it. It was coming. So these soldiers were trained men, these Mexican soldiers. Right. Trained and experienced officers. And they knew how to shoot guns. They, yes. <laughs> that, that was a good thing. <laughs> so certainly he picked up his long rifle, honed his knife, and waited. Uh, the plan of attack was simple. At the sound of the bugle, one attack took place from the north. Okay. Another was to storm the chapel 
and a third rushed in from the west. So three sides, they were coming. So the guns of the fort were fired, but they were not very effective. Uh, the Mexican infantry had gotten in close to the wall. So when they're in close, obviously the cannon... Oh, they can't, it can't shoot them. No. Mm-mm. So uh, by that time, all the outer walls and the batteries except one gun had been deserted. There was terrible hand-to-hand fighting, which took place until the last of the defenders was slain. Right. Uh, the body of Davy Crockett was found near the cannon, which was fired last. So he was, a, you know, he's always been kind of my hero. Mm, I've always liked Davy Crockett. Yeah, Davy Crockett, yep. you know. Now, Jim Bowie was slain in his sick bed, but not before he had dispatched two Mexicans with his pistols and slaughtered nine more with his terrible Bowie knife. Uh, the knife was still in Bowie's hand when his body was burned. The chapel was the last to fall. Uh, after the fall of the Alamo, the Mexican commander ordered that all slain Texans be burned. Okay. I don't know why, but that, you know. Okay, all right. Anyway, so 1837, General Houston commissioned Colonel Sequin to collect as best he could the remains of the Alamo defenders for military burial. So the bones and ashes that could be located were placed in one large casket and buried in a peach orchard a few hundred yards from the fort. So the brave defenders of the Alamo died for a republic that they didn't see come into effect. I mean, it did, obviously. Sure, Eventually, that, yes. Yeah. And so that's kind of the story of Jim Bowie and, and really the story of the Alamo. So I'm, I'm actually, I, I, okay, so I cheated and I brought up Wikipedia. Okay. And it said that he was induct, inducted posthumously into the Blade Magazine's Cutlery Hall of Fame in 1988 uh, at a Blade show in Atlanta, Georgia, in recognition for the impact that his design made upon generations of knife makers and, of course, cutlery companies, because you think about uh, the, the big knives and, you know, thing, and his the, his knife is synonymous. You know, it's just a Bowie knife. And it and any manufacturer can make one now and, and call it a Bowie knife. But he was very, very instrumental in that. And so I have just, you know, kind of some back history and some legacy. Well, and I, I've got to tell you, as a young man, uh, you know, enthralled with western cowboys and indians mm-hmm. i had a boy knife did you i did i mean it was probably so dull i couldn't have cut butter with it but you know it was it was the fact of it was a boy knife and i was i don't know 12 years old and i thought i was pretty cool because i had a uh, a buoy knife supposedly yeah i'm sitting here actually just uh, kind of uh, reading some different things about uh, jim Bowie and um it says, uh, his, despite his continual pronouncements of wealth, he had an estate that was found to be very small. His possessions were auctioned off uh, for only $99.50. Oh, wouldn't you have loved to have that original knife that he had in his hand? Oh, boy, howdy. Uh, you were hoping, well, obviously, I'm pretty sure he was buried with it, but that would be, that would be an artifact for, oh, yeah. you know, for in, the Smithsonian. In fact, I, I would almost bet that one, some of the Mexican... Uh, Soldiers probably took it. I, I don't know. Who knows? So you are not going to be here next week. Uh, or are you? Uh, maybe. Maybe. We'll, kind of? We'll see. Weather depending? <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens okay. in the next day or two. But yeah, we'll let you know. Okay, please do. Of course, uh, Dr. History here on Zebeth the Ranch. And, of course, we love, you know, you always give me quite such the history lessons. And, you know, of course, I remember learning about this in high school. But half the time I was, you know, either talking in class, passing notes, or just wasn't paying attention. So now that I'm older, I actually pay attention. And, and you always come up with some great things for uh, for your segments. Of course, you're heard all over the world. 
It's true. I've actually, uh, on my webpage, I've hit over a million hits on my webpage. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a million listeners, but anyway, so all over the world, yeah, it's, uh, about 130 countries have, really? again, not necessarily listened, but they have hit on the webpage, so uh, it's kind of exciting. Uh, where do people find your webpage? Dr-History.com. Dr-History.com. Country, can, can you actually look at the countries and see who's like... Yeah, who, I, I can and see. And which, which one's the... Well, it was top. it was China when I was over visiting China mm-hmm. when all the students were listening. Now it's the United States, but Brazil, Canada, Russia, uh, Vietnam. Uh, really? Cambodia, Taiwan, uh, Australia. Your world Brazil. <laughs> Yes. World-renowned Dr. History right here from our area and right here on Zebit the Ranch, of course. Thank you for coming in today. You bet. And hopefully we will see you next week. But if not, we'll, we'll have I, you will square me away. I know you will.